You are listening to a very special episode of the Darkest Hour podcast. This is finally the grand finale of our nearly two-year-long tour of the Halloween film franchise. At last, we've reached the end of the road, and we're going to spend the evening looking back at the journey Uh, We did with the Friday the 13th series many moons ago what we called the Machete Awards and bringing that concept back for this one. I think maybe we should call it the Chefies because of Michael Myers' preference for a chef's knife. We're going to go through some fun categories, hand out some awards, and honor the the highs and lows uh, and do a little debating about which are which. In this uh, whole franchise. And once again, I am John Evans, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Vic Wheat and Rich Eckersley. How are you guys doing on this fine evening? Whew, John, I just gotta say, I'm really relieved. I thought a very special episode meant we were going to confront Rich about his meth addiction. And uh, I'm I'm really thrilled that we can put that off a little bit longer. You guys, I bought all this meth. What am I going to do? All this Rich, you're going to have to wait. Vic's anorexia is clearly a more pressing problem. So yes, this is going to be fun. I don't know, you know, what to expect here. Uh, we've only done one of these before, and it was a million years ago. But uh, hopefully it'll just be a fun little chat. And oh, by the way, before I forget, um, we are going to cover a little bit, uh, a very light conversation. Uh, The movie Scream was very much inspired by the Halloween series. Of course, this is Wes Craven's 1996 film that took a flamethrower to the slasher genre and was extremely satirical and self-aware and was actually, uh, according to Wikipedia, this is very interesting, The it's the most successful, quote-unquote, slasher movie of all time, and it was the highest grossing up until Halloween uh, 2018, or Hollow Green, you might call it, the David Gordon Green version. But in adjusted dollars, uh, Scream is still on top. So we'll we'll touch on that a little bit at the end of the show. But let's get this thing kicked off. The first... Sheffy Award is Favorite Interpretation of Michael. And you guys can take this in any direction you want. I mean, it could be the look of the of the mask and the costume, the build, the height, whatever, performance, killing style, whatever you think uh, makes this Michael your personal favorite. My favorite interpretation of Michael was definitely Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. <laughs> the one, of course, uh, where he's glimpsed for 1.3 seconds in the in the in the frame of a commercial scene in a bar. I thought it was just Michael Myers as a a drunk adulterous uh, surgeon. <laughs> I went with the uh, first Rob Zombie uh, interpretation. I want to be clear that most of the time, for a lot of these questions, the answer is somewhere in Halloween one. My favorite, like the scariest, the the most iconic, the everything that stuck with me through the years. That's the first Halloween. But putting that aside, and there's a couple where I mean where where I'll come back to that. Uh, but putting that aside, Rob Zombie's take on it was first of all so different. It felt very much uh, very distinct, even compared to the the David Gordon Green that that came forward. And I and I actually did like that performance. Uh, and and a, a lot of what they did with it, uh, 
in that film. But this was the the first truly physically convincing Michael Myers. Then the first one, as opposed to the second one, I know that the visions of mom and and, uh, young Michael and stuff, that does add another layer to it. But just for... There, we we spent so long dissecting whether that was was it real or was it not, and what was the how are we interpreting that for just a a full straightforward fucking scary madman who could legitimately smash through a door or a wall and then crush your skull. Uh, I got to go with Tyler Maine in the first Rob Zombie Halloween. Yeah, I think it's fair because it's the same actor, you know, like that's that's his take on it. Like it probably it goes for both of them. I think it's interesting that you focus on the first movie's Tyler Maine performance versus the second one. I'm just curious, like you did did you not like his uh killing style and the sort of physical pr- approach to the performance in the second one or is it more that you kind of just seeing his face and all that takes him down a notch for you? Definitely the beard and the shouting of die. Uh, that, <laughs> yeah, that was all. That was all a bit much. So yeah, I would again if you if you're just to to really nail it down, this is the one I prefer. It's that Michael in that movie. Awesome, great answer. I'll uh, I'll comment when I get to mine. But uh, Rich, what's yours? You know, after like batting around a couple of things and looking at several mask comparisons, all of which, if you have a lot of free time to spend online. You can compare mm-hmm. all the different Michaels. The one that stuck the most in my memory, even though it was somewhat recent, was uh, young Michael, especially young mask-wearing Michael in Rob Zombie's 2007. Dag Firch. I really liked this sort of interpretation of the of the young Michael and the, the, the range that you get to see him go through. And I especially liked the creepy effect of when he had the mask on and you got this little body... Uh, killing with the the big mask on and even without the mask um i also found the kills that he had such as the the bully and the nurse in the hospital uh particularly effective um but more than anything like i found the kid very believable i thought like he was pretty well just executed in terms of acting which is more of an opportunity that i think most of the other people who have played michael myers ever got this is really interesting that you guys like immediately went to the Rob Zombie movies, which generally speaking aren't people's favorite movies overall. And while we definitely uh, liked a lot about them, I have to say like I'm I'm a little surprised that you guys would would go there. And as Vic mentioned, we could just say the first movie for every single answer and and have a very valid argument. So I do appreciate that you're giving us something else to talk about. Absolutely, and, but I do feel like like going back and and looking at all the different Michaels from all the movies, especially once you hit the middle of the pack, mm-hmm. they're all pretty weak. Oh, I agree. And I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. interested to hear if you, if you have a counter argument, but a lot of them just come off as sort of cheap and anemic. Well, I. I <laughs> I totally <laughs> anemic is a great yeah. is a great word. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I actually had in my notes that I was going to make the comment that some of the mid franchise versions of Michael just look off. Whether it's George Wilbur's shoulder pads or Chris Duran's masks or whatever the case may be, and I'm not quite sure why so many of the masks are 
kind of low-key terrible looking. I, I know that he has to find a new mask like two or three times, and maybe those are like the, the cut-rate knockoffs masks that are still being produced at that point in the 80s or 90s because the legitimate manufacturers aren't making the mask anymore out of good taste or I, I don't know, like if there's a, a diegetic explanation for it. But yeah, there's no doubt about it that Michael kind of you know is is an awkward presence in some of those middle movies and yeah it would be very hard to uh vote for for one of those incarnations what's and interesting my, is that mm-hmm. loomis over the over the movies gets scarier yeah <laughs> well sure he gets i mean he gets burned and he gets you know he's got scars and and he gets crazy I do. I do want to take a second just to stand up for the the most ineffectual, uh, flaccid Michael in <laughs> in Halloween six 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 that that stands awkwardly beside the cult while they're performing all these rituals and stuff. You never think you'd see Michael kind of off to the side, just you know watching. Well, now that's a scene, and I totally see your point there. But I actually like that Michael in a lot of ways. You son of a bitch! You're just antagonizing me, John. (laughs) You knew that was coming. We just started. But I mean, when you think about that, Michael's kills, like uh, impaling the the nurse's head on on the spike. There's a couple that are are really nasty. The way he kills uh, Jamie. He he has a, a presence. I like the way he walks. I, I think that that guy definitely brings a uh, a fluidity to the performance that's that's pretty chilling. That's Wilbur again, by the way. It's just he he came back um, with one movie off in between, and I, I think he definitely distinguished himself in sort of the body language and the pre Tyler Main savagery of his kills. All right, I'm going to take I'm going to take a, a hard slug off my golden drock that I'm drinking this evening. <laughs> what are you drinking, Rich? Anything or are you you back on the kombucha or are you sick or are you feeling okay or what's going on? Ooh, nice. I am starting out with a Modern Times Spaceways this Ooh. evening. I am recovering from being sick though, and I am feeling fully recovered. So, let's just call this the celebration. Cheers. Uh, cheers. Yeah, I got a little uh, sculpin going, just sort of my usual IPA. Fatherhood just exposes you to so many bugs, man. I'm not looking forward to that, I'll tell you. Uh, that is exactly what, what happened to us. I could give you all the gory details, but maybe not on the show. <laughs> we don't do gory details on the Darkest <laughs> Hour podcast. <laughs> Very sanitized. <Yeah. laughs> so, um, well, guess what, guys? My first thought... For my favorite, Michael, was Tyler Maine, um, because he made the part his own. However, the best actor's name is definitely Dick Warlock. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a title. <laughs> I want to see the tale of the Dick Warlock myself. Uh, I just, I was thinking, well, maybe it's recency bias with Tyler Maine, because we've just spent several months with his incarnation, and I talked him up a lot. Uh, and I did want to get cute and talk up George Wilbur, but I, I just think that even though you could argue that subsequent guys put more time and energy into developing the character than Nick Castle did in the first movie, you know, he was a non-actor making this little movie with his college buddy. I don't know how much 
thought he put into it. But that original performance gives everyone else the blueprint. So I guess, yeah, I am going to be boring here and go with him. And I will point out that there isn't anything iconic really after his performance. For instance, like a hockey mask coming into the character that other actors and films brought to the table that really changed Michael. I just think it's interesting this character never really evolves as much as Jason does. And Tyler Maine is closest to Kane Hodder for me in his particular physicality and how it becomes a dominant part of his take on the character. But when you just look at what Michael's uh, in Castle's hands gives us, it's the we've got the lurking, you know, with the the hedges and the stalking on the on the sunlit streets and how he appears and disappears. We have him carrying Annie, you know, in that classic kind of old Hollywood pose. We have him putting Bob's glasses over the sheet. We have the head tilt. We have the sit up. I mean, everything truly iconic about this character came from Castle, and he looks natural in his costume. So that's why I gotta give it to him. There is just an argument that the early Michaels are, are almost more of a prop, you know? Like, mm-hmm. they're, they're sort of like a, a set of, like, small mannerisms and lurking. Like, they're really this thing to be placed in a shot or to be, you know, accurately dispatched during editing um, in ways that are effective. But, like, whereas, like, Taylor Maine, like, did bring a significant presence like it felt imbued with a whole new spirit let's the the first michael is really i mean what castle gives us is kind of an empty vessel which is very scary on its own sure and 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 what gets filled in on him is filled in by loomis mostly you get those again you get the details like the head tilt and the glasses and and that's sort of the good fodder for for a podcast like ours but most of the character development that we get comes from Loomis's description of him, and then he just has to embody something that looks uh, looks like he's been looking through a wall for thirty years at this night. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, and that's kind of what I was getting at with the whole idea of I don't really know, and you know, maybe I'm forgetting my special features here, or there's a documentary. But, but I mean, uh, yeah, I don't think that Castle agonized for weeks or months about how he was going to do this. And I do think a lot of the later actors did. And, and I think, and Tyler Maine certainly, you know, gets a lot of props for being, yes, yeah, such a powerful, literally and figuratively presence. So I think we all gave him kudos here and I think he deserves it. But I do want to say that Castle is scary in a very different way. I mean, a smooth way, a gliding eerie way that 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 doesn't really happen in in most of Maine's moments and he doesn't kill much uh and obviously he doesn't kill with great brutality but he does in a chillingly cold way and i think that 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 did kind of create a template that the other slasher movies um would copy yeah okay any other thoughts on on michaels does anyone want to throw out uh another uh low light or any other thoughts on just you know, the actors or the masks, the crazy hair or whatever <laughs> that some of these <laughs> some of these guys have had. <laughs> I will say in full disclosure, because I know that the audience for this show is discerning and expects honesty, that because I wasn't here for the middle of the pack episodes, I did have to play a little catch up and a little bit of cheating. So I, I jumped around. But I also feel like I got a crash course of the entire series at the same time. That said, the middle the middle of the pack uh, movies for me are a little foggier than the ones around the edges, if that makes sense. 
Me too, actually. Like, we, we did these movies between 9 and 18 months ago, and I, I really don't have huge recall. And I'm talking about 3, 4, 5, 6, you know, those films. And I, I think that part of it is that I was always a Friday the 13th fanatic as a kid. And, like, those movies are indelibly written into the hard drive of my memory. And Friday the 13th just has such a, a place in my heart. Whereas the Halloween franchise, a lot of these films that we've been covering in the podcast, I either hadn't seen at all or I'd seen once. So all of it, I, I have to say, it's not quite the same level of uh, familiarity. And I did a lot of trolling on the internet and looking at videos and other people's top 10 lists and stuff. And this, this was a little more difficult for me. I gotta, I can't, I can't lie to you. It it really has been harder to come up with good answers for all of these categories. Vic, how's your take on it um, compared to the machete awards? Was this an easy exercise for you? Not only was it pretty easy, uh, but I actually found myself leaning kind of heavily on four and five throughout this. Okay. So I think that huh. those, for some reason, it, I think part of that just has to do with their sort of constantly being on AMC, and those were movies that I watched a lot as a, as a kid. So those really fell into my mind. And after a while, I really, I really sort of paused after I was done and went back and went, well, wait, what am I, you know, oh, let me think about Halloween 2 a little bit, or what am I missing from Rob Zombie or H2O or that kind of thing. So... In You're fact, not missing anything from H2O. <laughs> oh, there's H2O is going to make a few appearances here, John. <laughs> oh, yes, it is. Oh, yes, it is. The, this next category that's coming up, I, the answer to me was a was a an instant thunderstrike that I, I had did not have to think about for one second. Oh, well, I'm eager to hear it. Let's, yeah, Vic. Uh, um, we're not going to beat around the bush here. Do it. So our, our second category, somewhat of a, a lowbrow category, but I think an important element to the slasher genre is the hottest girl. And that was, without a doubt, I mean, oh, yeah, no, of course, it's going to be Kelly Meeker from Halloween 4. Brady Brady cheats on Rachel with Kelly, and she suffers the, the slasher film consequences of that, as does as does Brady. But I came out of that film... Number one, remembering how unbelievably in love with that girl I was watching that as a, uh, a young preteen and also feeling like she gets a raw deal. And I don't think she's such a bad character. Kathleen Kinmont, who played Kelly Meeker in Halloween 4, she is, she is easily my choice for that role. She was my first runner up. I had a tough time with this category, actually. Not that I didn't enjoy typing in hot Halloween girls into my search engine. <laughs> Only did not get the results um, that I was hoping for. I'm sure um, your results were interesting, whatever they yeah, were. They're, they're yeah, still, they're still novel results. Um, this actually became a pretty difficult category to figure out. I, I ended up with two answers in Please the sense see. that, like, I honestly couldn't make up my mind as I was flipping through photos of all the nurses from Halloween 2. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, the original, not the not the Rob Zombie remake. What? No, you don't no, think Octavia no Spencer is Octavia Spencer. mega hot? Oh, come on. <laughs> and then my runner-up was, uh, and I don't even have the respect to have her name, but the actress who plays Judith Myers, um, also in the 2007 uh Rob Zombie Halloween, Rich's favorite Halloween movie of all time. It's Halloween just a great, 7. It's just that all, I mean, all, all, all together that prequel sequence 
Really does it for me. <laughs> He's lying about all this research and going back. He literally just watched Halloween <laughs> in 2007. And, and I didn't watch the whole thing. I only watched the first 15 minutes. And I was like, I think I've got it all here. <laughs> Best character not named uh, Loomis or Myers is Ronnie from Halloween 2007. <laughs> that was your runner-up. Who's your uh, Who's your pick? That was not a runner-up situation. She ended up. She ended up being my pick. I don't know. I went. I. I swear. I really tried hard to look through, find thumbnails of all the girls from all the, the Halloween movies in the middle, including your pick, Vic. And I'm just not getting it. I don't know what was going on. I don't know who was doing hair and makeup on that set, but like it just wasn't working for me. <laughs> Except Halloween Two. Whoever casted Halloween Two, had their eyes on the prize. Well, like the nurse who gets the the scalpel in her back, she's very easy on the eyes. I will say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a list of nurses at one point, and I don't know why it's not on my list, but it's probably for the best that I don't have a list of nurses on my laptop. Yeah, that can be difficult to uh, explain, no doubt about it. I I think for the sake of uh, completeness, I am going to look up that actress's name because she was pretty awesome. I think it's Tawny Moyer. Tawny Moyer, and she was playing Jill in Halloween 2, and... That is also a very quality kill, I have to say. Um, yeah. That it's gory, but it's a it's a great moment when Michael lifts her up off the ground uh, from behind with the scalpel in the back, and her performance is great. And looks like in her IMDb, she's played quite a few nurses, which I can definitely see. All right, so valid choices. I don't remember thinking that Judith was well. She's she's, she's pretty hot in the Rob Zombie Halloween. I'm, I can get behind that. Well, I don't. I didn't have a thunderbolt moment, but I did have. I I tried like you, Rich, and I didn't get a whole lot of comprehensive lists. So I just sort of went to my first thought, and it was actually, believe it or not, it's Annie in Halloween One, the 1978 mm. original, and specifically, there's like good 10 to 15 minutes of her walking around in her button-up shirt and white panties, and it always just stood out to me. I mean, this is a movie that I did see a bunch when I was a kid, and that definitely pushed my buttons. (laughs) I just think that, you know, thinking about the whole series now, nobody else really stands out the way she does, and I really liked Annie's personality. I think she's the most vivacious and funny and flawed, but somehow real and likable of the of the friends in in the first film, and she's one of my favorite characters across the whole franchise. And I will say that Danielle Harris definitely does her justice in in a lot of ways in the Rob Zombie films. But as great of an actress as Danielle Harris is, I think that Nancy Loomis is my favorite Annie. She's spunky, sexy, goofy, horny, and human. Uh, I like it a lot. And my next note, Vic, was there are more beautiful women in this franchise, like Kelly in Return of Michael Myers. And there might be sexier moments than Annie prancing around without her pants on, but without the obvious stuff like big bouncing boobs or a bare butt, Annie just kind of manages to be really hot, at least for me. So I got to give it to her. All right, any other thoughts on on the beautiful ladies of this series? Any thoughts on the statement that I'll make that Friday the 13th is way easier to to come up with an answer in this category? Well, I mean, Friday the 13th has the the twins from Halloween 4 or from Friday the 13th 4, so Yep. Uh, yeah. No. I think that was fair. a unanimous decision when we did this the last as, time. As as I recall, yeah. 
Okay, well, let's move along to best character not named Myers or Loomis. And there is a little bit of a loophole here in the in almost every version of this story in the Myers verse. Laurie is actually Laurie Strode is actually a Myers, so you don't have to say Laurie Strode. This one was a pretty quick knee-jerk reaction. A skilled professional um, and an athletic and enthusiastic actor. It's Busta Rhymes as Freddy the producer (laughs) in Halloween Resurrection. I I, I thought you were going to say Judy Greer, but that's fine. That was the obvious answer. All right. Well, uh, expand on this a little bit, Rich. Uh, We know him. We love him. Uh, he's got some of the pithiest one-liners in the entire franchise, but uh, tell us more. Yeah, what more is there to say? I mean, like, he's a non-slimy but still shystery producer um, <laughs> who, who is, for some reason, making a a, 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 a a internet TV show that he is theoretically losing money on. He's running the entire production by himself. He still has times to make house calls from his like standalone bungalow um, somewhere in in Haddonfield to the to the cast. He spends his free time watching kung fu movies and impersonating Michael. He has the idea for setting up a high chair with handcuffs on it and burying skeletons in the walls of a house. He's a genius, and he's also a black belt who's not afraid to handle electricity. <laughs> I mean, what nice. does this guy do? Hey, and, Mikey! Happy fucking Halloween! Yeah, and he delivers, <laughs> and he delivers stupid dialogue with absolute gusto. I there are a lot of dumb characters in horror movies, and he is not an exception. But I haven't enjoyed watching any of them quite as much as I enjoyed watching him. He was so fun. Absolutely, uh, I am a, definitely an apologist for that movie, and there there's some fantastic. Busta Rhymes stuff in that, like where he says, Michael Myers is a killer shark. Baggy ass overalls gets his kicks from killing everyone and everything he comes across. You know, no one, no one was as excited to be on set as he was. Yeah. Yeah. Like everyone else there was collecting a paycheck and like, you could just tell that he was showing up every, like he was the first one at the breakfast truck every day. Like he was just like, he was practicing those lines. He sells them hard, man. Like, yeah. And he brings so many like levels to that character. Like a lot of the, the scripted decisions are ridiculous and somehow he, he makes it work. Uh, He's really refreshing. And he has some of my personal favorite interactions with Michael Myers across the entire franchise. Yeah. Not to mention the I, I'll always love the uh you know what just just give yourself a little pat on the back. Just give yourself a pat on the back and then he pats himself on the back <laughs> yeah, for, for yeah. Oh man. Yeah, yeah he, he has an inner monologue that is external uh to himself <laughs> like Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was. That's, you could tell that the director every day, the director would yell, you know, would yell "cut" and be like, "All right, I think we got that one." Uh, what's you know, what's everybody else? You have to coach along a little bit, but I think Busta was good. He was getting everything in one take. Yeah, and and maybe riffing. Uh, keep keep it rolling, man. I'm not done. Absolutely. Yeah. He was my runner up. This was another one that hit me instantly, and I didn't even have to think about it. Uh, my favorite character in this whole franchise is Tina from Halloween Five. Yeah. There's a maturity to her that 
she recognizes what's going on. She's aware of all this responsibility that's landing on her in terms of her relationship with Jamie and everything that, that crazy Dr. Loomis is trying to put on her. And she literally just like she rejects it out of this determination to have a normal teenage night. She just wants to go out and get drunk and get laid and and even though it's like it's almost it so easily could have been like a shitty move. Like she could have come out of that movie being a terrible person who leaves Jamie alone right after she started talking so that she can go off to this party at a at a farmhouse because where else do people have parties in in Haddonfield apparently. And yet she makes it endearing. It's I mean it's almost it's almost painful to watch how badly she just wants to be normal. Uh, it, it really, I mean, it, it, it sticks with me, uh, which is not something I thought I would say about Halloween 5. Well, one of the things that I've experienced in doing research for this podcast and listening to other podcasts is what's the general consensus of fans of Halloween movies? And, I, you know, I, it pains me to tell you this, Vic, if you're not aware of it, but Tina is um, universally hated. <laughs> I'm not – that's not a joke. Well, John, I, I like to go against the grain, you know? That's, I mean I – Tina's an outsider and uh, I think she and I have a lot in common. Wow. Universally hated? Universally hated. <laughs> well, I mean look. First off, I am with you and that's why my reaction when you said that was 100% heartfelt and anyone who listens to our podcast about – that movie or our two podcasts about that movie will know that. Um, I think she's great, but I am just pointing out that, you know, she's probably going to be voted like people's least favorite semi lead character in, in this series. And I don't know why, like I've tried to like explain it to me haters. Like what is the problem? And like the only kind of overarching takeaway that I've been able to pick up is sort of what you were talking about, that she doesn't take it seriously enough and she doesn't have heroic beats and she's sort of a goofy, flimsy character who's all mannerism, mannerisms and just not a solid heroine as she's sort of forced into being in the story. And I, I say that's great and refreshing, and I like the energy, the offbeat persona that she brings to it. And I think you're right. I think she rises to the occasion. She doesn't do anything that isn't understandable on some level, and she does her damnedest when push comes to shove. Well, I just want to say right now, right here on this podcast that anyone who feels that way about her that she is she is the worst character i will challenge you to a fist fight anytime anywhere it's like the <laughs> uve bowl thing all yes, over again except yeah. <laughs> without the gloves we're gonna do that kickboxer shit where we wrap our hands in tape and then stick glass on get broken glass on it <laughs> That's how it goes. I don't, I don't want to scare anyone out there who might want to take Vic on, but he can do the splits like Jean-Claude <laughs> Van Damme. <laughs> he can do it. Be afraid. All right. Well, I love that nomination. I went a different way. My favorite character is Dr. Daniel Chalice yes. of Halloween 3. Tom Atkins, everybody. Yeah. Love that guy. Like, I have to admit, I bring a lot of just general affection for Tom Atkins. And make no mistake, he is playing Tom Atkins. He just brought Tom Atkins to the table. Yeah. 
<laughs> Absolutely. But I mean, kind of, I, I think maybe a spiritual cousin to Busta Rhymes, right? Like, this is a guy that makes the movie more interesting with how kind of out of place and vibrantly over the top he is. If he had been a flat character, like if he had been a sort of some milk toast budget actor, that movie would be truly unwatchable. He's an anchor in the, in the craziness of that film. And I agree that he may exist in sort of a different universe from most of the rest of this series, both uh, narratively with all the timelines and tonally. But I think this is Tom Atkins at his very best. This is prime Tom Atkins. The unlikely Lothario, the unflappable man's man, who's endlessly self-confident and somehow both cynical and earnest at the same time. Like, I just really love his character is kind of a joy to watch. And that's that's my choice. But I, I very much respect both of your choices. Well done. Also, also, Tom Atkins is a raging alcoholic in that movie, which is just which is just totally unacknowledged, like that. He just yeah constantly drinking, constantly sneaking out past curfew to get a bottle of whiskey. He's a raging yeah. alcoholic in that movie and every other movie he's done. And when he's not on set. <laughs> hey, he is still alive and very sharp, I just want to say. Yeah. So that that is one of the, another funny little element of, of the film, no doubt about it. And one that I can relate to. <laughs> raging alcoholic humor. Okay, so favorite Sam Loomis line. Now, this one's not even fair because... There are so many, like, I don't even, I could not really pick one. I have three, maybe four that I wrote down, and whichever ones you guys don't pick, I'm probably going to go with. I also wrote down four, and I found a supercut of just every, it's every single Loomis scene uh, strung together. From the entire series, it's it's only 22 minutes long, surprisingly, and it was just a fantastic watch. Uh, I highly recommend it. Yeah. If Vic only has one, maybe we should have him oh. start. Oh no! I, oh no! I oh, no! I I also have four. Okay. So we all just have Loomis lines queued up. All right, yeah, great. Let's, let's do let's let's do a round let's do a round table then. I, out of my four, I will pick two. I'll start with my runner up, which was from Halloween Two. Loomis says. In many ways, he was the ideal patient. He didn't talk. He didn't cry. He didn't even move. He just waited. What a shitty psychiatrist. (laughs) (laughs) The ideal patient. Yeah. (laughs) I like that. Like, like no wonder Michael's so (laughs) fucked up. He was really low maintenance. Are you going to say anything today? No? All right, build the insurance company. I'm going golfing. (laughs) (laughs) He was very pragmatic. Not, Not quite as poetic. As a not his most poetic moment, mm-hmm. but that was not it, on my list. I figured it would be it would be an outlier, so I threw it out there. Excellent. No, it's great. All right, Vic, why don't you give us one? This would be at the bottom of my runner-up list, but I did love this line: uh, "Bad taste is the petrol that drives the American dream." Oh, yeah, that was a good one. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's a uh, that's from the Rob Zombie second film, Halloween yeah. Two, of course. Malcolm McDowell delivered that one. All right, that's great. So far, you guys haven't hit on mine. So I'm going to – this was the first one that came to my mind, but I don't think it's the best one. So it's a good one for me to start with here. I prayed that he would burn in hell, but in my heart I knew that hell would not have him. Oh, John, that's – you dusted that off pretty well. 
that impression. Thank that's you. that's right there, dude. <laughs> Halloween Five. Yeah, I really like that one because like the sort of the implication is he's the worst of the worst, and I think mm-hmm. that's a that's a great thing to to say in a in a poetic way, and it's also filled with vitriol. Back to you, Rich. Uh, Halloween Two. I ca- I can't remember exactly why. But so, but someone who is tired of trick-or-treaters calls out to Loomis, I've been trick-or-treated to death. And Loomis just mutters, you don't know what death is. Ding, 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 <laughs> ding, ding, ding. That was one of mine. Love it. <laughs> that, of course, is Halloween 2, the original 1981 Halloween 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're about to have our third Halloween 2 coming up here. So, All right, that's one of the three that I have. All right, back to you, Vic. I'm going to go with a, uh, a classic from Halloween 1 which is Loomis staring down at the mangled corpse of a dog and saying, I guess he got hungry. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, here we go. Here's, here's mine. This is the number one and I'm not going to give the whole speech, but um, here's, here's the part that I I, want to highlight. I met this six year old child with this blind, pale, emotionless face. And the blackest eyes. The devil's eyes. <laughs> God bless Donald Pleasance. Nobody else could have made those lines work. He rules. That's why I kind of excluded him from the best character, uh, Derby, because, come on, he's the heart and soul of this whole franchise, in yeah. my opinion. I was just very struck on like a purely like superficial character development level watching the supercut of, of him. Like I said, when you watch the movies, it's a, it's almost a little lost on you just how elevated his performance gets from film to film and how yes. he becomes more disfigured and more crazed. And when he's dealing with, like, Jamie, like, he seems completely unhinged. Um, although she serves to be a pretty good, uh, a good co-star uh, for him. Like, he acts well with her. Like, his performance has an arc as a man who is driven insane by this one particular patient and by this case that haunts him and that eventually dies unhinged and dissatisfied. Broken. It's a more satisfying arc than the Rob Zombie arc, uh, well, for sure. Or, oh, yeah. or does he? Because there's at least an iteration of Halloween 666 where he becomes the leader of the cult and we just leave him in a hallway screaming, No! Which is very true, which actually I liked on some level. Yeah, but you can tell, and it's something that we really did get out of doing this podcast, you can tell that Donald Pleasance put thought into this character and into his arc from one movie to the next to the next, even as the movies got sillier and, you know what I mean, by the time you get to Halloween Mm -hmm. 6, 6 doesn't really quite fit. I mean, he does, you can tell I think he's cashing a paycheck there. He does, he does good work. Like, I'm not going to take anything away from him. But I really think the arc for, for him is from Halloween 1 to Halloween 5, when he literally appears to die face-to-face with, with Michael. You can tell he knew what he was doing in each one of those movies, that he was pushing it a little bit further and a little bit further, and even having a little fun with it. Well, you could argue, definitely, that like it would be better if you didn't have his performance in Halloween 6, that, yeah, that was the perfect capper. But I totally agree that there is really... The only continuity in this series uh, might be his performance and his character arc, that... 
Donald Pleasance maintains a continuity through his stubborn insistence on making this character uh, have a, an authenticity throughout each of the films, and he's tracking it. No matter how ridiculous the circumstances around him get, there's definitely the, the sense that in, in his mind, Loomis is going through all of these things and, and changing. He might even say he comes to find a peace with who he is and how messed up this situation is, because I believe it's in... It's either in four or five, one of you guys correct me if I'm wrong, where he needs a car and this crazy reverend picks him up, like a, a preacher, a traveling preacher. And they have this wonderful interaction and Loomis kind of sees himself in this other deranged uh, believer, you know, who, who's kind of on a one track mind, who's on a course that you know, can't, he can't be shaken from. And, and Loomis, you know, feels a kinship, but also realizes how crazy this guy is and thus himself. And he actually, he, he, he can laugh about it and he can accept it. It's a fantastic scene. Yeah. Loomis is the beating heart of, of the franchise and he'll always be dear to mine. Okay. So funniest line or most amusing moment. So yeah, you can take this in any direction that you want. Let's start with you, Rich. The scene in Resurrection in which the cameras are set up surveillance style, you see Michael creeping through the house <laughs> behind our protagonists, only to see that Michael being followed by another Michael. <laughs> because it turns out that the first Michael is actually Buster Rhymes dressed as Michael, being followed by the real Michael Myers, who honestly just does doesn't seem to know quite what to do with Buster Rhymes uh, and leaves him be. I have like three potential answers here. That was one of them. (laughs) Absolutely love that. It's such a surreal moment. It kind of reminds me of like a Buster Keaton skit or something like that. It has this very old uh, vaudevillian Hollywood kind of sensibility to it. It's funny because it is it borders on parody but it's but it's not like it never becomes scream the joke is never self-aware which which seems impossible like you couldn't do that joke today and not have it be self-aware and yeah. somehow like they were just capturing the innocent spirit before Kevin <laughs> Williamson came around that's so true. Absolutely. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it would be such a groan-inducing moment if you if you if they were in on the joke, but it's it's a movie that you Instead, know it's just a case of mistaken identity. <laughs> right, right. And yeah, okay, I, I will say that maybe Halloween Resurrection is so bad it's good rather than being this, you know, brilliant self-aware film that doesn't appear to be, but but that absolutely works, especially when you're slogging through this whole franchise and you're just desperate to see something really fresh. Like it, that, that, that moment was, is magical to me. Obviously that was my number one choice, but I had, there were, there were two other things I wanted to bring up. Uh, the first is the <clears throat> John from Halloween H2O, uh, the, the wonderful dialogue between Sarah and Charlie when she says, get out, when she says, Oh God, I love food. I really do. I, I hope you don't <sighs> mind if I get really big. It's my goal in life. And Charlie says, I, uh, I always found obesity to be very sexy. She says, God, you're so progressive. That's <laughs> yeah. just that's just wonderful. I love that whole scene. Uh, and then I would also just, just say that, that possibly the funniest thing in the entire franchise is Paul Rudd's entire performance in Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, his twitchy mannered weirdo schizo performance. It's fantastic. Yeah, I totally Guys, I'm agree. proud of Paul Rudd. <laughs> Me too. Be nice to him. He's doing okay, Rich. It's gonna be hard for him to put up with all the hatred he gets for being Paul Rudd. Yeah, that poor guy. Uh, what what a life that that man must endure. I will say this: there there are five good moments in H two O, and that Kevin Williams Williamson dialogue is probably one of them. If I'm going to go for a runner up, I thought about when Buster Rhymes chews out Michael Myers because he thinks he's an incompetent PA. I, I thought that was pretty funny mm-hmm. as well. And Michael just kind of takes it and does not attack him. And I also thought about when Loomis yells at the bully kid, you know, and has fun with scaring him when he's like, hey, hey, Lonnie, get your ass away from there. Like, I really kind of, I thought that was uh, a nice moment. You don't see a lot of humor from him. But I am going to go with Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 when Weird Al says, I'm a little confused. Are are we talking about the Austin Powers Mike Myers or (laughs) (laughs) is this someone else? (laughs) Because finally, you know, somebody needed to make that joke at some juncture and it finally happened. And it was delivered by Weird Al Yankovic. I had a runner-up here of speaking of humor from from Loom to be pulled from Loomis. Halloween four, there's a very like dry, low-key joke when him and Jamie are are rummaging through the school and they're fleeing Michael and he's trying to explain to Jamie that they're going to be okay, that they're going to be safe, that they're going to find you know the police. And he says, he says, when you when you hear this, when you hear the sirens, we'll be safe. You know, like just listen for the sirens. Just listen for the sirens and everything will be fine. And she says, do you actually believe that? And he just goes, no. That's great. And then just continues on with the action. Yeah, his dry delivery. When you have a character who's so unbelievably serious, like when he does say something funny, it really stands out. So let's move on to another category that was definitely uh, more prevalent, I think, in the Friday the 13th series than it will be in the Halloween franchise. But what is the coolest weapon in your guys' eyes that we saw? Uh, I want Savannah to weigh in if possible, but um, the the three-legged cat may have an opinion on this. But it doesn't have to be used by Michael Myers. Just what is the coolest weapon I'm going to go with Michael Myers' thumb, which mm-hmm. he drives into the skull of one of the EMTs in the back of an ambulance in, I believe, Halloween 4? Yes, yes. Yeah, never seen that. Never seen the thumb through the through the skull. So, yeah, that was that was a good one. If Mike Kuchek was still on the podcast, I think he would be arguing with you vociferously because I'm pretty sure he hated that for some reason. Like, do you remember he had a, a real problem with the idea of Michael just putting his thumb through someone's skull? Like, it wasn't realistic, or I just I kind of remember him not not digging that one. So it's funny that well, that's your like gold standard. That's if I, if I have the chance to antagonize Mike from beyond the grave, John, I'm going to take it. Um, Rich, do you have any thoughts on that particular one? I know that's sort of in that foggy gray area of the franchise. It is in that foggy area. I know I've seen it. Uh, I don't have a problem with thumbs going into skulls. I'm all for that. So <laughs> I don't know what Mike's problem is, but Vic, I support you 100%. If you got Thank a thumb you. and you got a skull, like it's a natural marriage. And that's why Mike's gone and you're in, right? <laughs> Savannah approves this message. Yeah. All right. Well, right. that one is definitely striking. I think it's very visceral. It's very gruesome, and it, it demonstrates the power of Michael Myers. So 
I'm not going to argue with you too much. I did note as I was trying to figure this this out that it's not really a weapons-driven franchise. Uh, he uses a pitchfork, Michael does, and a scythe and a couple of power transformers and at least one fuse box. But uh, this is not Jason with all of his various toys. Yeah, I, Michael is basically just a prop sometimes. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't need a prop. He is a prop. So, yeah, we'll let Rich finish this category. But my answer is the silver shamrock masks uh, from Part 3, Season of the Witch. I think that they're very unique. And what they do is as diabolical and horrible and unsettling as anything else that happens in this franchise. And frankly, I would say, off the top of my head, anything that happens in the Friday the 13th franchise as well. That is a very, very good pick. Certainly the one that I wanted to choose as my coolest weapon. Although I did have a backup prepared just in case. What a great weapon. That doesn't make any sense. A mask? The way in which the mask works? Sure. You, you put on the mask and there's this somehow, like some little crystal chip or something in there that's associated with Stonehenge. And it has this evil druidic magic running through it. It activates when the Silver Shamrock song is playing. And all of these loathsome, terrifying, nasty, vermin-type, you know, spiders, insects, snakes, everything that people are afraid of, I, I guess they materialize in your skull and devour your, your, your brain and your face and then, like, evacuate the mask. <laughs> It, it checks it, out to me. <laughs> it's pretty horrible. Oh, and by the way, guys, like a very, very quick anecdote. Uh, I am arachnophobic. I have been for a long time. My childhood didn't have any major huge incidents, but the, the fear was always that they would get on me while I was sleeping. That was always my the root of my fear. If I let a spider hang out um, in, the, in this space where I'm staying, it's going to end up in my bed with me. Well, you know where this is going. After uh, more than 40 years alive, uh, I had this happen about a week ago. I felt something in the bed bothering me, and I, it's been so long since spiders have terrified me in some way. I didn't really think that much of it. I, I treated it as though it was, you know how like some flying bugs, they land on you, and you just kind of, you grab it, and you, you, you look at it, and, and you get rid of it, right? Is that ever, does that resonate with you guys at all? Sure. sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, where it's like, oh, what is this? Like, oh. is it a beetle? Is it some kind of... Anyway, so I pulled it off of me, got out of bed, put my glasses on, turned on the light, and looked at it, and I'm holding a spider in my hand. And I'm like, ah! <laughs> and throw it down, throw my shorts on it. My wife gets out of bed. I'm like, oh, my God! Oh, my God! It was in bed with me. It was on me. And uh, she killed it. But it was... <laughs> <laughs> What would you do without her? Uh, yeah, that's a question I ask on a daily. It set me back in my arachnophobia at least 25 years. Now I'm back to, which I did when I was like an early you know, teenager. I, I check my environment when I go to bed. I look at the ceilings. I look at the walls. I look at myself. And I guess I picked it up maybe like the last time I went to, to pee in the, you know, around midnight. Maybe it dropped on my head. I've had a spider drop on my head before on my birthday. That was not good. Anyway... <laughs> So I just wanted to throw that in there. There's lots of spiders in these masks. I love this has become John's spider podcast. <laughs> if this podcast Assorted is about spiders, terror. Spider stories. 
<laughs> I've got several more, to be honest, but yeah. <laughs> he was kind of sluggish, and I will say, I have to give him credit, he didn't bite me, ever. Like, he didn't bite my legs, he didn't bite me when I was holding him, so I actually kind of gained more respect for, for spiders. Well, I won't tell you the terrifying one I have about being in Vic's backyard, because then you'll just never come over there again. <gasps> oh, God. I'm already traumatized at the thought of this. <laughs> well... My coolest weapon is something that was made impression on me, not only in the Halloween franchise, but definitely was burned into my memory as a child, and that's the hot tub in Halloween 2. <laughs> that's a weapon? Wow, okay. I guess it, he weaponizes the hot tub. You're right. <laughs> he does weaponize the hot tub. He takes Nurse Karen, also hot, by the way, Yes. and... So Karen is semi-nude by the side of the hot tub. The camera is on her. Behind her, you see Michael murder her would-be lover and then come over, give her a shoulder massage, then take her and forcibly dunk her face into a hot tub that he has inexplicably been able to turn up to an extremely high temperature until the flesh is just flaying and coming off of her face. It's a really pretty horrific kill, all things considered. It doesn't even make any sense. Why do they make a hot tub to get the hot? <laughs> well, first off, Rich, I will say that this is a very strong, very strong candidate for best kill of the entire franchise. It did not occur to me, sir, to make coolest weapon hot tub. But uh, <laughs> you got it in there, which is great because it definitely deserves to be talked about. This is the kill that... Uh, stuck with me the most over the years. It's the kill that frankly traumatized me whenever I first at a young age became aware of it. And it, it's extremely, extremely unsettling. I think I even like was reading the novelization of this movie in like a used bookstore as a little kid where my, you know, my mom would take me to a bookstores and I like picked this up off of that little carousel of uh -huh. cheap, the cheap, movie tie-in rack uh-huh cheesy cheesy paperbacks and i pulled it and I, I was flipping through it and i was just you know beyond freaked out to to read about this and it definitely lives up to to your description it's it's horrible so vic if you're available on the moon which is i think where you ended up having to call in from after our technical difficulties what what are your thoughts on the hot tub kill that definitely makes my list of the uh, the best kill. In fact, I feel like a lot of the things coming up will be things that we've talked about previously. So I don't know if this is going to go faster as we uh, as we keep moving. Um, but yes, hot tub, very very imaginative use of uh, or interpretation of the question, Rich. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> All right, so let's move right along to most effective ending, uh, Vic. While you're uh, leaning over the soup cans, why don't uh, I, I'll let you run with this one. <laughs> okay, John, John, you can make one more crack about my audio quality, okay? It's fucking it's spectrum fault. This is not my fault. <laughs> the most effective ending is uh, Halloween 1, obviously. That is an all-time great cinematic ending. I mean, not even just across slasher films or horror films. I think it's one of the great endings in in movies in general. The cut, not just the, as a matter of fact, it was the boogeyman and then looking over the railing and Michael gone and then all the cuts to the the places that Michael's been, the, 
the quiet dark corners and all these suburban houses and you know with the with the music over it i mean it's haunting it leaves you 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 come out of that movie just quaking with terror it's brilliant but my honorable mention does go to h2o because something about lori cutting michael's head off and and let's just say it's michael's head off um and you get that great crane shot up of her and like there's no dialogue like it's such a it's such a just lori cuts michael's head off the end it's great i really like that one too that's a dishonorable mention in my opinion well, I'm glad that at that uh, internet cafe in Mumbai that you, <laughs> you're still able to cling to your love of H2O. Um, that you, you know you haven't hit the hookah too too many times or something and changed in, your your, your stripes. In, Moom- in Mumbai, that's actually the only Halloween movie you can get. We've got hundreds of bootlegs of it, but it's the only one. <laughs> yes, yes. There you go. There you go. I mean, Halloween one's gonna have to take the the sweep here. It's obviously the the best of the series. I will give an honorable mention to a dark horse candidate here, which is David Gordon Green's Halloween from 2018. I don't I don't know why I didn't really enjoy the movie. I was not a fan, but I found the ending of it, particularly the last few minutes, surprisingly effective. Once they've executed their plan and trapped Michael in the house. There's something about the wordless escape and the the three surviving final girls all pile into the car and the camera just slowly zooms in on the knife that the youngest is still holding. Um, and then it finally cuts to the, the iconic theme song. Something about it felt sort of evocative of the of the 70s in a way that David Gordon Green is, is pretty good at pulling off. And it just felt like it said something wordlessly chilling about the story, even though the rest of the story didn't necessarily deliver. Wow, I'm glad you mentioned that. And that's that's a really good segue to something I wanted to say somewhere on this podcast, which is just that this is the one, the 2018 David Gordon Green approach, that I want to watch again more than any of them. Like if you told me, all right, right now you have to watch one of these Halloweens, what are you going to choose? I would pick this one because I haven't crystallized my opinion of it. I did see it twice in the theater within like a week or two, and we, we covered it on the podcast, and I did not particularly love it, but I am definitely open to appreciating more about it as time goes on and as I put it in a perspective uh, outside of you know my expectations or hopes. And I did want to point out that I think Vic mentioned at the beginning of the show that uh, the shape in that one is is great. And I do agree. And I think he kind of has some Tyler Main qualities, but he also incorporates some of the more classical Michael Myers mannerisms and approach. And he's a very promising Michael Myers that I'm actually looking forward to seeing him carry the mantle in the next movie or two. James Jude Courtney is the guy. So I think there's, you know, there's more to be said about that, but, you know, we're still in the early days of that movie. Vic, what are your thoughts on, on what Rich just said? You know, John, I just want to say that the, the one that I really want to watch again is Halloween H2O. Uh, mm-hmm. I actually think I'm, I'm going to watch it every morning when I wake up. It's going to be the first thing I do is just put on H2O. Well, apparently uh, in some... It. 
some parts of the world, all other versions are sold out, but that one is available in every bargain bin everywhere in town. Oh God, we're um, we're just warming up, folks, because we're this is about to get serious in that, the next category or so. <laughs> I honestly, I only saw the David Gordon Green one the the one time in the movie theater, so I agree. I need to I need to revisit it. I mostly am struck by their plan, like that that she had this trap, and I, I could see what they wanted the trap to be, but I, the, the fact that there wasn't like an escape route or something, I it was just, it was a terrible plan, and I can't, I I'm not able to forgive the movie for that. Yeah, I guess like but maybe I, but maybe I will. And and that's what, like what I'm saying about it. I purely enjoy it on a on a cinematic level. Uh, I didn't like the rest of the movie. If you pick it apart from a storytelling point of view, I'm with you 100%. I didn't feel a whole lot during the climax of the film. But the ending is sort of an inverse Texas Chainsaw Massacre where you actually get in the car with the survivor instead of staying on the road with Leatherface. And I just liked the way that it was executed. Rich, that, that is something I will keep an eye on when I do finally get around to revisiting it. Yeah, I'm actually looking forward to it, and I, I hope I like it more. But So my pick here for most effective ending, and I think I'm there's starting to be a bit of a trend here in my choices. I'm going to highlight the end of Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Mm. Absolutely mm-hmm. love when Tom Atkins is on the phone with the TV stations. Yep, agreed. It is so, so riveting and harrowing and intense and ultimately tragic as as mike kuchek used to say on the show wowie zow it knocked me out um his <laughs> <laughs> he's you know when he's just talking to the guy and they're not they're taking it off this commercial that's killing you know potentially killing kids all over the country <laughs> which the, and, just that concept on its own is preposterous it it, yeah. it it is because of time zones, right? Yes, like on the West Coast and the East Coast, it's three hours apart. So, but let's just say in the time zone that he is in, uh, there are three channels that are playing this this commercial. And like, yeah, obviously, I don't know exactly how it worked then, but getting one person to to, to change multiple channels at the same time. Yeah, it's pretty preposterous. But if you just go with it, like this is the early '80s. Who knows? Maybe it was a simpler operation in some some way. But he's when you just when he starts going the the third channel, it's still on. Please take off the third channel. The third channel, it's still running. Stop it, please, for God's sake, please stop it. There's no more time. Please stop it. Stop it now. Turn it off. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Somebody get just- me a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> But his meltdown and the intensity of the the music is going in the background. It's one of the most dark and nihilistic endings that I can think of, certainly in this series. And it it just that, yeah, there's no, oh, Laurie chopped off his head. She exercised her demons. Everything's going to be okay now. (laughs) Sorry, Vic. (laughs) No, you're not, John. No, you're not. It's a knockout ending, and it's, it elevates the whole film. Say what you want about this movie, or, or whether that's you know believable or not. There is no film that that has an ending like that, and it, it's excruciating and wonderful, and I love it. 
Nice. What was that? Uh, that would be number two for me. Same beer. Same beer. We're not. Excellent. We're not. We're not getting fancy tonight. We're not shaking things up. <laughs> I switched to Sierra Nevada Celebration, the fresh hop IPA. Oh yeah, I always like it when that one comes around. Yep, it's a special. You know, definitely a, a, a seasonal that you don't get uh, all year. And I used to really love it, and I've gone like five or six years without drinking it, and I'm really enjoying kind of rediscovering my uh, my love of it. It's really oh, coming I... through in your Tom Atkins reads. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I, I went back and I listened to, while we were having tef- technical difficulties, my last Donald Pleasance was definitely subpar, and I apologize for that. It didn't have the whispery. <laughs> like, you have to have a quaver. Even if it doesn't fit whatever he actually said, you have to put a lot of quaver in a Loomis line. So I, I, I apologize for that. We'll you work know? on it, John. Okay. You just got to amp up the quaver. So, Vic, what uh, what kind of, like, tea are you drinking there in India? <laughs> <laughs> it's a Taj Mahal uh, beer. It's a lager. It's, uh, <laughs> it's very common here in Mumbai. No, I uh, I actually did switch to a Golden Monkey, which does sound, you know, Eastern. It does. Um, so you're not drinking uh, chai tea right now. Oh, all right, cool. I am not. I am not drinking chai tea. But yeah, Golden Monkey, delicious Belgian triple. I should be getting much less lucid very soon. So, well, that's a good time to start talking about the most underrated installment in this franchise. I, I really have no idea. I can't wait to hear what you guys come up with. This has been a little surprising so far, but in a good way. So, Rich, what is your choice for the installment in this series that doesn't get enough love? Damn it. Well, I think you'll be in agreement with me here. My choice was Halloween 3. Mm-hmm. The oft-overlooked, much maligned, many people, I, I think I think used to hate it because it wasn't actually part of the series, and it's kind of a joke to, to some people for that reason. And a lot of people who are even fans of the fran- or fans of the genre today still don't seem to enjoy it because... I don't know. It's got something to do with the druids and the androids, which is fair. <laughs> what? You don't like druids and androids in the same movie? Come on. But I'm with you. It's so, and it's it has been a it's been a while since I've seen it. I have not seen it as recently as you guys, but I have seen it in the past. Uh, I don't know, like eight years or so, and it is such a strange plot. Like you never quite know where it's going. Tom Atkins is, is a unique character, but more than anything else, it's just that the damn silver shamrock concept and the, the masks, which have become iconic just in their own right. The death that you described that comes as a result of the masks, like all of those tent poles, even the part where the, where the woman is, is, fiddling with the um, yeah. with the button on the masks in her motel room and ends up being blasted onto the ceiling. The elements of it are so horrific that I remember seeing it as a child and I was not distracted at all by the fact that Micah Myers was not in the movie. I was just gripped by these images and I still am. Uh, I love that movie. It's weird. It's not perfect. It's got some rough edges. But it has some really indelible, truly original moments in horror. And that is a hard thing to come by sometimes. 
Wow. Well said, Rich. Uh, yes, that's my choice as well. And to add to that, like the scene that you mentioned with the woman in the hotel, where just completely out of nowhere, for her face to get destroyed by this little tchotchke, it's unbelievably horrible to watch. It's so unexpected to have such an over-the-top death. I don't ever want to experience that death. It's weirdly unique. It looks excruciating and horrible and ghastly. And it comes out of nowhere because, like, normally a character is doing something they shouldn't. We all kind of know, well, don't go down that dark alley. Don't go into the graveyard. Don't break into the vampire's mansion. Like, there's always sort of a, a logic to it. Well, this chick is, like, just fiddling with a toy. And boom, she's suddenly dying this awful way that disfigures her corpse in a really dis- true, truly disturbing fashion. And I'm sorry, that beats a, a chef's knife to the chest any day in my book. So I I think that the, the, the kid getting his head destroyed in the same movie is even worse because it's a kid. But, I mean, I think for one of these movies to have two kills of that magnitude that just totally blindside you and have shock value and this just really strange, unique, lurid, ultra-gory punch in the face, like, that's kind of my type of horror. And I think that, like, I, I like slasher movies and I like so many of these movies, I even love them, but... But generally speaking, Halloween 3 is more my kind of horror movie because it's it's insane. It covers so much ground. Like, there's a body snatchers quality to it. It's a sci-fi horror film. It has all of these themes about commercialism and corporate America and employees and towns that are rooted in one industry or another. There's all these sort of things that are under the surface. And it's got Tom Atkins, for God's sake. I mean, I I could just go on and on. And yeah, I totally agree, though. It is not a perfect movie. And there's some definitely some weak stretches of this film. It's a scene that's uh, a movie that's really elevated by five or six standout scenes. And then there's a lot of stuff that is a little forgettable. But I, I definitely think it's the most underrated, even to this day, even with all the sort of rediscovering of it that has gone on. Um, I mean, I just think because the critics didn't like it and it bombed at the box office, I have to say it's still underrated, and that's why it's my choice. Having watched all of these movies uh, with a bunch of friends, like I don't think any of them were nearly as fun as this one. Like mm-hmm. everyone was having a great time watching this movie whether it was reeling in horror at the snake crawling out of the eye hole of little buddy's mask or laughing at Tom Atkins going out to get a drink. Like it was just a consistently entertaining movie in a way that the others aren't. Well, we're on the same page there. And I did want to throw out that also in my notes was next to watching the David Gordon Green one again, for the reasons I've already explicated, this would be the one that generally speaking, I would want to watch again. And I have to give a lot of credit for that. My runners up just, I'm not going to talk about him, but my runners up for underrated would be curse of Michael Myers, which I did get a lot out of. And I enjoyed more than most people Halloween resurrection, where I definitely enjoyed that more than most people. Apparently I think generally the, the, the fan base, the cognoscenti, of this franchise think that's the worst one by a mile. 
and Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, which I definitely thought was outstanding. And generally, people do not think that way at all. So, okay, Vic, lot to lot to digest there. What are your comments, and what's your award for most underrated installment? Number one, I anticipated that you guys would probably pick Halloween 3 hmm. for all the reasons that, uh, that, that you've just laid out. I picked Halloween Resurrection as a runner-up. Mm-hmm. For again, I, we've we've talked about that one a lot already, and, and sort of Busta Rhymes, and just I don't know, generally a lot of the the stuff that they're able to pull off in that I think works. Although it does have one of the worst endings, but uh, no, but my my pick would be Halloween Five. I think we were we were all really surprised when we got into it, and I think I, I we're going back through this. I feel like we brought up Mike a bunch of times. It's like we're talking about our ex-girlfriend in front of you, Rich, and I'm, I'm, just, no, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Rich, you're beautiful. Um, we love you. <laughs> you're beautiful, and we love you, and we never think about Mike when we're together. Um, <laughs> I can say wow he's Al. Rich, try it sometimes. But, uh, it, it, you, you might yeah. like it. Just, just say "Wowie Zow." <laughs> say it, Rich. Say it. <laughs> but it's uh, what I remember is when we got. By the time we got to the end of part one of that, which somehow stretched into a two-parter, and Mike saying, "You know, geez, like I really came into this thinking I wasn't that crazy about it, but now that we've talked it out for three and a half hours, I think I actually really like this one." And I think that I, I had much the same reaction that I think the what Donald Pleasance is doing with Loomis's character arc. I really love that scene where he has to talk Michael Myers out of, you know, he's holding the knife and he's trying to talk him down and trying to get him to give up the knife. It's one of the few moments of real connection that you see between Loomis and Michael instead of him just talking about him in this very abstract way, you actually get the sense that maybe he did treat this, this kid uh, as a patient for 20 years. There's a lot of things in there. And of course, I mean, again, the stuff with Tina's character, I actually still find the Jamie's relationship with the other little boy in her home to be kind of emotional and effective. So I found a lot of stuff to, to like in that movie. And that is one that I actually would, uh, I, I look forward to Halloween when that's running on AMC and I can, I can watch it again from, 30 minutes in. I'm really glad you mentioned that Vic, because I failed to, but it's, it's right there. And I, I agree. Like one of the weird things about doing this podcast is watching movies that I don't expect to like, and that other people don't, that one is probably right down there in terms of people's least favorite. And I found a lot to like, if anyone who's listened to that, our, our two podcasts knows already, Incidentally, Joe Bob Briggs, the great Joe Bob Briggs, who does his his show is back on Shutter right now, and he did a Halloween hootenanny uh, this year, 2019, and he watched the first movie and the well, yeah, and then the next two of the Jamie Lloyd films, so four and five, and he was very definitive that like he doesn't like five and five is terrible and four is so infinitely better than five. And uh, yeah, I don't really see it that way. I know the argument for it. I know there's a lot of weird stuff and a lot of negatives with five, but I, I, I do think it's underrated and there's a lot of really interesting choices that the, the director as sort of 
kooky as this guy is makes and the performances are quirky and weird. And I, I think there's some great moments in it, especially by the way, uh, I, I, I don't think any of us has brought, have brought this up in this podcast, but when Annie is in the car with Michael and he's wearing like the different mask pretending to be the boyfriend and it goes on for yeah. like a couple of minutes. I, I love that scene. I just think that that's again, one of the things I love about sequels with Michael is they put Michael in different situations and you see how he reacts in a situation we haven't seen him in before. That's always part of the interest in it. I don't need to see Michael doing the exact same things in every movie. I loved seeing that facet of his personality, like playing even two different characters. Cause not only is he kind of impersonating the boyfriend, he's wearing a different mask while doing so. I just thought it was great. Agreed. All right. Well, that was fun. I think we, we did justice to a lot of the redheaded step children of this franchise and I think they deserve it. So now on to the main event of the evening, which is the argument over most overrated installment in the franchise. <laughs> I think I should start this one. <laughs> Gee, I wonder what I'm going to say. I was all set to spare us the trouble and just call it Halloween 2, the original 1981 Halloween 2, because I was very disappointed watching it for this podcast after our deep dive into the original and I I definitely felt it was shoddy and I could talk about like a lot of its sort of dopey aspects and the fact that Jamie Lee Curtis is essentially bedridden for most of the film and Laurie definitely is is mostly a non-factor in this movie that's that's a big problem and there's there's many things but it has very good kills as Rich mentioned there's a couple more I think not only is there the hot tub scene, but there's like a hypodermic in the eye and mm -hmm. yeah, there's the knife, the aforementioned knife in the back of the nurse. Exactly. Yeah. There are kills that stick with me to this day. And I, I can't even say that. I mean, there's Friday the 13th movies where I have to think about more. Okay. What were the kills in that one? So it's definitely Halloween two by definition comes out of the basement on, on the, the merits of being a really strong slasher film if nothing else. So that leaves H2O baby. I've said a lot of bad things about H2O on our podcast covering it. I will just reiterate and sum it up that this is a movie that consistently, again, the category here is overrated. I'm not saying that I hate everything about the movie at all. I don't hate this movie, even though it's kind of a fun thing. My uh, conflict with Vic over it. I really don't, but I consistently across the board, I, I keep telling you guys that I'm sort of aware of what fans and, you know, the devotees of the series think. Well, whenever anyone says, oh, I love that opening sequence where, you know, Michael is pursuing the nurse from the first two films, Nurse Chambers, and he sticks the ice skate in Joseph Gordon-Levitt's face. I mean, we don't see it, but, you know, that what a great shot of him with the skate in his eyes and in his, in his head. And, you know, the aforementioned throat-slitting quality of that sequence when he kills uh, the nurse ultimately. All of these things other people just like a lot more than I do. I will even go so far as to say that the, the, the moment 
moment that many people extol is one of the great moments of this whole franchise when Michael is on one side of that door looking through the little round window at, at Jamie Lee Curtis and, and Laurie is, you know, meeting his eye contact for the for the first time in twenty years. It's good. I'm not gonna say it's bad, but I don't cream my fucking jeans over it. I'm sorry. I just I, I'm like, okay. You know, it's it's a good scene. I, I, I'm not reading into it that it's some transcendent moment of cinematic genius. And I agree. It's a cathartic ending. You know, I can get behind what she does. I like when Michael is flipping all the tables in, in the mess hall or whatever of this of this university. And I like uh, – I, I love – actually, the one thing I will say is that the kill with the girl with the dumbwaiter where her leg gets mangled and she's crawling along and she ends up like with a, a lamp thrust into her her rib cage that is fucking awesome i will not that's the only thing i even remember from that movie. yeah 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 i mean that i will i will say i probably i like as much as anybody that is badass but generally speaking everything that people extol about that movie right down to well when he comes down from the rafters with one arm and it's like okay it's 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 fine but it doesn't blow me away. And then there's so much just kind of ordinary stuff in that very brief and breezy movie that it's just – it feels slight and kind of forgettable to me. It feels like, as I said, and I'll just say it again, it's like a TV movie for me written by Kevin Williamson. And it's nowhere near my my favorite. And people, to Vic's credit, this one is you know top – Four to six on most people's lists, and that's why I have to ding it here because it's it's very near the bottom for me. You well, son of a bitch! <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> take it away, Vic. It's you've got the floor, baby. <laughs> Again, Don, I think even when when you and I disagree about that movie, I think we both we both agree by and large about the things that are good about it. And I think that the things that are not good about it are just worse for you than they are for me. And that's that's one of those things that's a, a matter of opinion about which you are exquisitely wrong. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I my for my most overrated, I went with the the David Gordon Green one. That is one of the highest grossing horror films of all time. Is kind of absurd to me. I can I can name ten better horror films than that over the last five years, and. It's fine, and and a little bit like H2O, it has some elements to recommend it, but I would even argue that the lows in that film, I mean, what they do with the Doctor character that kidnaps them to take them back to, it just, it's it's so absurd. It just, it stretches crudely past the breaking point. And then to have the the characters that you want to see that cathartic moment, you can see what they're going for with the moment when they trap Michael in the basement and everything else. They just miss it. They just miss it so much. I'll watch it again because I want to make sure that I'm, I'm not wrong. But it's boy, that one feels definitely bottom two or three for me. Overrated, considering like people do seem to love that movie, and again, a lot of the Halloweenies or whatever you want to call them, like fans were many just embraced it with open arms and walked out like just so happy that this is the the Halloween movie that they received, and I certainly did not feel that way. So that's a very good call, Vic, and I. 
I can't argue with you. However, I will just say, like right now. However, I'll argue with you. Well, no, I mean, I, look, I, I already said it, but yeah, I would probably rather see that than H two O right now. And I think that at least it's got it's, it's gorier and grittier. So you know, I don't expect to like it less than H two O after after the dust settles. But you never know because there's a lot of things that drove me bonkers. How about you, Rich? What's uh, do you have any thoughts on what we've just been saying uh, as a segue into your pick for most overrated installment? Uh, well, that's going to be a real easy segue because <laughs> my most overrated installment is also the 2018 remake by David Gordon Green. Hey yo! I mean, uh, sure. I mean, Vic, Vic nailed it. It's it certainly fits the bill for the most overrated, given how successful it was. And what a, at least for horror, a cultural phenomenon, especially for a theatrical release in this day and age, it was. I was disappointed as a Halloween fan. I was disappointed as a David Gordon Green fan. Like, I think that that guy actually has some pretty high career highlights. I was disappointed as a Danny McBride fan. I mean, like, Mm -hmm. there are no ends to the levels to which I found this movie just flat and dull and devoid of personality or any sort of actual clearly defined vision. It was just kind of a vague idea and some nostalgic shots. Yeah, loaded with nostalgia. I I think as we had been through studying these movies, I noticed probably not even all of them. And I started to notice them actually, funnily enough, on the podcast as we watched the next several Halloween movies after doing the 2018 film, like, oh my God, it's the greatest hits of, of the Halloween franchise. Like it, it stole from every single Halloween movie, even things and movies you wouldn't expect it to steal from. It was, it was doing it. And whether you call that fan service, that is somewhat tongue in cheek. And you can say it's not quote unquote, truly derivative because it, it's so aware that it's doing that. And it does put it together in somewhat of a new arrangement, but it felt so uninspired to me. So I'm open to the possibility that I'm going to hate this movie even more, but I don't want to say – I want to reserve some judgment on it. So good call, guys. I think those are – that I totally see where you're coming from. So how about – let's move on to scariest moment. This is one of those ones where even though the first movie would sort of dominate all these these categories if if we allowed it to, the scariest moment for me really does have to be Bob pinned to the wall with the the knife and Michael sort of cocking his head. You can make a case for Michael sitting up behind her and a few other instances of him sort of appearing. But there's something about that scene in that it's very still. Like I can point to the, you know, to, oh my God, Michael, oh my God, Michael's behind her. But in this scene, it's, it's just, it's just unsettling. And I think that the fact that that's a moment that we've seen repeated to increasingly diminishing effect across the franchise points to how strong it is in the first, in the first movie, just what a, a weird peek into Michael's psyche which we don't get very much of in that outside of Loomis but just in terms of his behavior 
there's a there's a reason that that's something that they repeat over and over again. It's iconic. It's it's really 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 effective. My honorable mention is the hospital scene from the Rob Zombie Halloween Two. I found that that whole scene top to bottom just mm. really nerve wracking. Yeah, that's a good call. I didn't think of that, but I agree that was impactful. Well, Vic, while you're down the well, would you hand the mic over to Timmy and we can find out what he thought as well? <laughs> it's actually that's that's baby Jessica you hear crying. In the oh, baby Jessica! Oh, yes, yes. Uh, hey, that's a <laughs> that is a '90s uh, reference. At least that's uh, better than my Lassie joke. <laughs> my Lassie yeah, joke from, it went from '50s to '90s. That's impressive, guys. <laughs> Uh, wait, uh, well, wait, is 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 Samara from the Ring down here? Can we? Uh, I think Pennywise has an opinion. <laughs> okay, so um, that was uh, well well said, Vic, and I think that both of those are are great. The iconic value of of so much of of the first movie, yeah, is represented in the homages and reworkings and flat out repetitions that we see later. And yeah, I do find it chilling. You know, it's, I don't think there's music when he, when he does that head tilt when, when Bob is pinned to the wall. I'm not sure. It's just quiet. Yeah. Which is great. It's very, very effective. And I will say this is probably a good time for me to throw mine in before we get to riches, because this is where I double back to the end of that film. To me, I think the scariest moment in the franchise. And this is very arguable. Like I, I'm, I'm not going to the grave, you know, swearing about this, but when Michael Myers isn't there on the ground at the end of the movie, after Loomis shoots him is terrifying because you just, there, there's something so bleak about that. And it does perfectly set the table for a franchise that that's what we're dealing with. The, the fact that he just gets up, and walks away and is still out there is, is really chilling. And when you're wrestling with that, it's hard for us to imagine because we've seen this a billion times, but I'm really trying to thrust myself back into the consciousness of someone where when you shoot the bad guys, they, they stay dead. That is the DNA of the unkillable killer and of the inescapable death right there in that sequence. And in between the line, you know, that you mentioned earlier about the boogeyman. Yes, it was. And the music there and the shots that follow again about the, the places he's been and the fact that he, he can go back there anytime and they're, they're alive, but they're not safe. Loomis and Lori and those kids that's the first really like deeper existential fear that this whole franchise and the slasher films and, and the, all the horror that comes out of this period, I think that really sets the table for it, that it's this sort of nihilistic, hopeless moment. And yeah, I find it very, very scary. Loomis did shoot him six times. Yep. So I've been told. Six times. Was that Principal Rooney that you just... Out there? Oh, I don't know. That sounded like a Ferris. No, no, Bueller. that was that was that was nine. That was nine <laughs> times. Oh yeah, nine times. <laughs> nine yeah, yeah, times. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Loomis does mention it later, and in another classic Loomis line, uh, how many times he shot him? 
just to just to cover the spread, uh, my choice was Laurie Strode in the closet oh. in yep. the first movie. In my mind, this is the first movie. If enough time had elapsed and you asked me how much of the movie is spent with Laurie in that closet, I'd say a half an hour. Mm-hmm. But it's not. <laughs> it's, just a, it's just a few minutes. And it's base horror. It is just naked fear, and it's very effective. And when you read tales of audiences in the 70s going to the theater and being so scared that they were screaming and jumping out of their seats... You can picture it in this scene. You buy it. She's just trapped and the knife is whipping around and you're hearing it like cut the air and you're seeing him break his, uh, break through the, the slatted doors of the closet. It's just, it's just animalistic fear and it's very effective and there's not much to it. But at the end of the day, like it sticks with you and it also got replicated movie after movie for the same reason, because you're hiding and you hope that you're safe. But at the end of the day, you're really just pinned in a corner. Rich, I know that David Gordon Green agrees with you, and that's why he gave Laurie a house entirely filled with closets with slatted doors <laughs> yeah, 40 he... years later. <laughs> There's only one closet store in Haddonfield, Vic. <laughs> <laughs> it's more economical to make those slatted doors. They are, they're very easy to produce. Yeah, that that definitely deserved mention, Rich. So I'm I'm really glad you did. It it was one of those scenes that of course I I gave serious consideration to highlighting here because it's so visceral. It's so intense and just the physical destruction as he's plowing through it and the stuff with the hanger as she's defending herself that's one of the the, the most harrowing moments in in the film and and probably yeah the most intense combat that that she and Michael ever have and yeah it's it's fantastic i'm glad we are touching on like some of these very iconic things from the original movie because you know this is one of those series where the first movie is head and shoulders above the rest i mean do we agree on that yes okay oh yeah now we can move on all right so this is sort of the best picture award of the machete awards or the chefies uh in this incarnation because, you know, it's a slasher movie, so Best Kill should be the most coveted prize. Let's start with you, Vic. Of course, take into account creativity, impacts, VFX, whatever you value most as the, the ingredients of this standout kill of the entire Halloween franchise. I, I have sort of a bronze medal, a silver medal, and a gold medal. Okay. Uh, although at, even even that actually, I mean, that's not even entirely correct because there were three that sort of stood out to me. But we've talked about all three of them, and I think they, they could go in a they, they could go in a couple different you know different orders. But uh, certainly the the family's brain melting in season of the witch. Uh, so I think we've 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 covered that in pretty good detail. But that is uh, easily one of the best kills of the uh, of the franchise. The hot tub scene in Halloween 2, again, we've covered it for obvious reasons. Flesh melting off its face. Hot tub that gets to be, you know, 200 degrees Celsius. Uh, and then, John, just for spite, uh, I do have to mention, uh, even though you, you mentioned it as well, the Jodie Lynn O'Keefe getting her leg nearly but not entirely cut off by a dumbwaiter in Halloween H2O. 
and dragging dragging it across the kitchen floor only to find Michael waiting for her at the end and then to wind up with the the lamp shoved inside of a rib cage. Uh, that's those are those are my th- those are my three and again I you could, there's a there's a bronze silver and gold in there somewhere but every time I try to juggle it and put one in front of the other they they wind up switching around so gun to your head or you know chef's knife to your sternum what what do you have to go with like right now in this moment you know after talking about this for two hours like what what is the best kill my <laughs> 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 I my my gut emotional reaction is the Jody Lynn O'Keefe and Halloween wow okay but not and not just for spite I swear no, but I, also I took spite. you seriously yeah <laughs> I, I know you wouldn't do that Vic <laughs> yeah because I'm gonna hold I, you to I respect that. I respect I respect these awards too much yes. to, uh, to <laughs> the integrity <laughs> of this process. That's right. <laughs> All right, Rich. I'm also going to tear my kills as, as Vic did a honorable mention to, uh, Octavia Spencer's, mm-hmm. uh, kill in Rob Zombie's Halloween two. It was brutal and cold. The way that she walks out the door and starts talking to Lori, um, only to have her lips, split open and have blood start spilling out before Michael busts through and just starts stabbing her like a crazed animal. Um, <laughs> it was chilling. It was the kind of thing that just like, no matter what you were doing when you were watching the movie, it stopped you dead in your tracks and made you realize you had to pay attention to what was going on. You were folding your laundry and you're like, holy shit, I'm putting <laughs> was, these was, boxers I was, down. I was like eating or something. It was one of those <laughs> things where it's like the spoon was halfway to your mouth. <laughs> and you just stopped and stared. I do want to give a shout out. I just and sorry, the next two don't even involve Michael Myers, but but they're the ones that I picked. Um, for some reason, I always come back to this. I love it when Ben Tramer gets hit oh, by the police. Damn car. you! Damn you! <laughs> oh, that's my number one. <laughs> I'm really mad that I missed that. I didn't think of that. Oh shit! Stealing great. my thunder. All right, go it on. It comes. It comes out of nowhere. It's like something out of a Will Ferrell comedy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> They're running down the street with a gun. Lewis is just is throwing it around, and and, and Tramer, dressed as Michael, walks in the middle of the street, only to be blindsided by a police car <laughs> that drives into, I think, like a news van that inexplicably just explodes like it's out of a Michael Bay movie. <laughs> Barbecued Ben. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we just watch him burn for a while, and you know Loomis is dealing with the aftermath, and then we get the charred corpse. And you know, like, what makes this so amazing is that this was Laurie's quote unquote love interest in the first movie. You know, like it's not just some random person. The amazing twist of cruel fate that this <laughs> this this is the guy that that Laurie was going to go out with if this terrible day and night didn't happen uh it it feels like 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 some filmmaker out there has a rogue one of ben tramer's story (laughs) yes i i agree i rich honest to god i was gonna say the same thing but i was gonna say rosencrantz and gildenstern are dead all right fair (laughs) enough (laughs) yep yeah it's halloween from the perspective of ben tramer getting drunk with his friends and then getting hit by a car yeah i mean we we definitely talked about this when we covered that movie but is there anything like it in any series ever (laughs) no the way he's set up and dispatched in the most ironic but authoritative fashion 
ever. He's literally wearing the mask of the guy <laughs> who is stalking Lori and killing her friends. It's just like how all of these things coming together and and he dies in this unbelievably ignominious, un, unlikely, unfortunate way. It is laugh out loud. Loud funny. It, it, it's a contender for funniest moment of the whole thing. Like once you're really, you know, you've seen these films, uh, it, it, it takes on a, a tragicomic dimension. So overall, it's just my, yeah, it's my favorite death in the whole series. But yes, runners up for me were, uh, well, I mean, I, I was considering a bunch and I'll just, I'll, I'll mention them. The bully getting beaten to death with the branch in the zombie Halloween that still stands out to me as one of the more personally disturbing kills that I was most shaken up by watching. The hot tub kill Halloween two is yes, you know, on uh, overall on paper that's the most standout kill in the whole series. The kid with the mask in Halloween three, the the woman in the hotel in Halloween three right up there and you know beyond that Jordy Lynn O'Keefe in in uh H2O definitely is a honorable mention but those are those are the top ones for me and I, I think yeah Bob Bob definitely has his place because of his historical value but that one doesn't it doesn't really bother me that much and and for this one I really wanted like something that either shakes me up makes me laugh you know something that really uh, affects me, and uh, that, that's that's what I came up up with. So, what do you what do you feel like it says about this series that fifty percent of those kills barely involved Michael, at least in any sort of direct contact? Interesting, because even the dumbwaiter is. I don't know. Someone would have to remind me exactly how that played out. But it's Michael almost an indirect she, kill, isn't it? No, she well, she climbs out of the she climbs into the dumbwaiter and goes up. And then when she's she's trying to get out, but her her dead boyfriend is blocking her path, and Michael is beneath her cutting the cable. Mm-hmm. So she gets almost all the way out. Michael cuts the cable, and the dumbwaiter falls and and just rips her leg off like midway down the shin, just hanging by a string of flesh, and she's dragging it with her across the floor. Uh, and then Michael, and then Michael shows up. I don't think we actually see Michael kill her. We just see Michael sort of step out and stand there as she's trying to get away. Well, our, our historian of H2O has spoken, so. We <laughs> well, I, I did again. I watched it. I watched it this morning. I'm going to watch it again tomorrow morning. <laughs> um. Does anyone want to, and no pressure, but does anyone want to say what their least favorite movie, like objectively, not politically, like what is the, the worst Halloween movie? For me, it's still Halloween 6. Uh, John, I, I know you found some value there. I, I still, it will forever be colored by my childhood interest in bordering on obsession with the cult surrounding Michael Myers and the man in the trench coat who kicks the dog who breaks Michael out at the end of Halloween 5 and my desire to know what what's the mystery, what's going on. For 12-year-old me, it was lost. Uh, and then uh, Halloween 6 was like the last episode of Lost. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I think there's some really great stuff in that movie. I think it does a lot of stuff better than Halloween 5, that's for sure. Even though it's far more 
troubled production, ramshackle editing, and the way that Act 3 is thrown together. It shouldn't be better than Part 5, but in my opinion, I think I, I like it even I, I like it more than part five, but I hesitate to say like I don't I don't have a definitive answer to this. Rich, do you? I will say that I do strictly pulling from my my memory and my sense of nostalgia. I had the exact same experience that Vic did um, with five and six. I remember being very intrigued by the way that they that they set up the end of five, and I actually feel like that was like the first time that I can really remember having like a fundamental understanding of like a series having a mythology to it. I was certainly familiar with Friday the 13th, but Friday the 13th is, is, you know, borderline episodic where each installment is just like, sure, the killer's the same and, and the, the backstory is the same, but ultimately it's just kind of like a rinse and repeat of we're doing the procedural kills um, on a new set of campers. And that was the first time that like my interest was really piqued with this idea that like this, uh, this is a franchise that's actually telling like an arced story. And then we got there and I was just like, huh? So that's how I remember it. But that said, it's been a while since I've seen them of the ones that I did rewatch for this run that you guys did. Nothing really, nothing really deeply disappointed me. I was actually pleasantly surprised by just about everything I saw. Yeah, I mean, that's why I'm struggling with it. Like, I feel like whatever is last, I, you know, that's so damning. And But something has to be last, right? Whether five or six is better is such a difficult question for me because they're both, you know, on some level bad movies. But um, I think that, you know, why I would defend six in some ways is just that it's very, it's much darker. It has that sort of new line 90s, seven kind of tone in some ways, whereas five is so much goofier, but there's things I like so much more about five. So yeah, I don't know. I I don't think I'm, you know, gonna go on the record here. I just kind of wanted to throw it out there. Ultimately, I have some kind of affection for each and every one of these movies. Uh, I will amend something I said on the last podcast where I said, I think I like these movies better than Friday the 13th. And I think that, yeah, overall, like they're more interesting and rich and textured. But like, if I, if you ask me right now, all right, John, we're going to watch four of these movies between one of those two series. Like I I get excited about watching Friday the 13th movies in a way that I, I don't know that I would about most of these. So it's, that's also an undefined question. So who cares? They're fun and I've really enjoyed it. We don't have to rank them and hierarchize them. I just will say my last comment about this whole thing before we move on to Scream is that it's funny how such a simple movie as what was originally called The Babysitter Murders. And that is kind of all Halloween 1 is, narratively, would spawn such an amazingly convoluted mythology and series of alternate timelines and web of characters and the Myers verse. I just, it's, it's amazing that the babysitter murders turned into this like almost epic multiverse of possibilities and stories that we're getting ready to get the third Halloween two mm-hmm. uh, in, in 40 years is, is pretty incredible. Yep. Well said. Also, like for, and I know there's a big contingent of people who enjoy druid-related horror. This was your franchise. 
Yeah. In the eighties, <laughs> if you wanted druids, be they ones who were creating androids and taking pieces of Stonehenge and putting them into masks, or ones who were, <laughs> you know, raising the dead to do their bidding. Like yeah. this is your job. This is the this is the yeah. druidic horror, man. Yeah, it's a it's a fertile uh ground to mine. There's no doubt about it. Uh, and who knew and about something, you know, again, the babysitters, mur- babysitter murders spawned the, the Druidic horror wave. So let's, let's talk briefly about Scream. I, I have to say, I always have more to say about movies that I'm passionate about. I watched this uh, maybe two and a half, three months ago. And, you know, it's fun seeing the reverence and the references to the original Halloween that are worked in and the slasher genre. In general, and there's things I like about this movie. I I cannot, you know, hand off the baton to you guys without saying the first sequence in the film with Drew Barrymore remains as it affected me the first time I saw it in the theater. Tremendously effective, but it's all a bait and switch, you know, and that's fine. The movie is is somewhat of a joke. It's a gag. It's a parody, but the movie says, hey. We're going to give you this tremendously, you know, clever and intense and disturbing opening sequence. And then we're going to just spend the rest of our running time subverting it in various ways. And maybe that's the enema that the horror genre needed at that time. It certainly had an impact. But I I found it, you know, in retrospect, it's, it's not... It's certainly not one of my favorite horror movies. Vic, I know you're much more of a fan of this film. I'll, I'll, I'll pass it off to you first. Well, I mean, I wouldn't say that it's one of my favorite horror movies, but I did watching it again, and I, I thought it was interesting, actually, because Emily watched it with me, and it was something that she was really into, and I, I sort of mentioned, you know, look, I, gotta, I, you know, I need to watch Scream, so I don't know if you want to do some orchestra. She said, no, 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 I'll watch Scream with you. So I think it does have, I mean, it, it, it has a, a mass appeal beyond horror fans that is nothing to, to necessarily shake a stick at. That it, it works in a lot of ways as a comedy and, and in a lot of other ways. Uh, I do just have to say, too, because this is, a, this is a, a really strange story and I had forgotten until we started watching it. Uh, you guys both knew my ex-girlfriend, Tanya, with whom I had a, a, we started dating in high school. We broke up for a little bit. We got back together. She was my, my one sort of serious relationship before I got married. And our very first date was to see Scream at a movie theater in Virginia Beach, Virginia. And I was movie nerd enough that I had kind of picked up on this movie before it had really blown up. And this was back in the days when movies didn't always open in 3000 theaters. So this played kind of a limited run. Again, we had to drive for 45 minutes to see it. And I I even remember that we got in late and I missed part of the opening scene, but I still really liked the movie. And when we walked out, Skeet Ulrich was there. Whoa. Like, Asking people if they'd seen the movie, and they're like, "What did what did you think of the movie?" Blah blah blah, and we were like, "Yeah, we 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 really liked it." Um, and he said that his grandparents lived in Virginia Beach, and it was like one of his first movies, and so he really just wanted to be there and see what what people were thinking about it and how they were reacting to it. He signed Tanya's ticket stub, and she kept it with us. For all I know, she still has it. I almost texted her before the podcast to see if she still had it. I've always wanted to like bump into Ski Ulrich in a like a is it Ulrich or Ulrich? Anybody? Let's say Ulrich. Mm, Ulrich. No, I would go the other I've way. Always, 
<laughs> well, either way, we got it. Either way, we're covered. <laughs> yeah. But I've always wanted to, like, bump into him or, like, you know, there's got to be a meeting or something somewhere in L.A. I'm going to run into Skeet Ulrich and say, hey, were you waiting outside a movie there? Or, like, was this just some fucking weirdo <laughs> pretending to be Skeet Ulrich? I don't know. But so that was my, that was my first experience with this movie, which I thought was, again, just, just still a, a really weird thing that happened. But I agree, book, as a horror nerd, this was one of the first movies that rewarded your horror nerddom, but you didn't have to have that to get it. Uh, I love the, you know, the guy in the the red and green uh, sweater that's like the school janitor, and the I think that was Rose McGowan says, "Oh, is that Wes Craven in the uh-huh. sweater?" Yeah. There you go. See, look at that. My my nerddom continues to be rewarded. You know, I think at some point Rose McGowan says something about a Wes Carpenter movie. There's a, and, and it's just, I mean, all that stuff I think is 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 really sort of interesting. There's that, some great that, dialogue. It's not, it's, it's not interesting, but yeah, it's it's clever and it felt good to. It feels good to feel like you're in on the joke. I think this was part of Henry Winkler's. Like this was at the beginning of his renaissance as an actor. Yeah, because I actually I think, think he's you're pretty right, good yeah. in this. I applaud the casting all oh, the way his, around. I applaud the casting. His character does not need to exist. <laughs> no, it does he's, not. He's a, I mean, he's a, it is he's, a totally a superfluous character and death. <laughs> yeah. Boy, I cannot read my... I'm not editing any of this. It's Thank all you. going Oh, in. good. All right. Yeah. Outstanding. Do that. Um, uh, I I found that uh, the Gail... The, uh, Weathers. Uh, Gail Weathers, yes. Uh, that her character arc was essentially the same as Loomis's in the zombie Halloween two, where she starts <laughs> off as this fame craving uh, monster. And then gradually uh, through the, through the love of a, of a good man in David Arquette's Dewey becomes sort of a better person and even kind of a heroine by the end of it, which I thought was, was just sort of interesting. There's a moment, this is just totally random. There's a moment when Dewey comes out of like, he's like on duty in the police station and he's, he's got an ice cream coat. <laughs> It's like so. It's like the whole movie is him trying to be taken seriously as a cop, and he's just like licking this ice cream cone, uh, which I thought was again just one of those nice little touches that that Wes Craven brings to it. And your Skeet and Ulrich your best ter- friend is, uh, Kevin Williamson. Skeet Ulrich is terrible in it. Like his <laughs> his performance is bad. His character's bad. Uh, I think that I kind of rooted for him as an actor for a long time after this, largely because I met him outside the movie theater that time. And uh, now he's going to listen to this, and then I'm going to run into him. He's going to punch me. Um, uh, I love the touch of the ghost face after he stabs somebody, especially when he's coming after Nev Campbell. He cleans the, he wipes the blood off the knife. It's a, it's a very menacing touch. Um, and the other thing I think that that I really sets this apart in a certain way from a lot of these franchises is that the killer is immediately, I mean, from the Drew Barrymore scene, he is an inherently and obviously mortal. He is yes. not going to be Michael Myers. He is not going to be Jason Voorhees back from the dead. He's not going to be Freddy Krueger. This is just a guy in a mask. And they're really unapologetic about that. There's no flirtation or any idea that this could be something supernatural. It's it's fundamentally a whodunit. We went and saw Knives Out this this past weekend, which is terrific, by the way. And especially, I mean, 
Jamie Lee Curtis is, is uh, wonderful in it just to bring it all back. Mm. But at the beginning of it, we saw it at the Alamo Draft House in downtown LA. They did a little a little primer on like Agatha Christie and who done it, and they mentioned, you know, it's it's you know who who could the killer be or killers? I'm looking at you, Murder on the Orient Express and Scream, and of course they cut to Matthew Lillard and Skeet Ulrich. The fact that we're still referencing that is is just sort of it, it is fundamentally kind of a whodunit. Uh, you know, it's a it's a hyper violent Agatha Christie, basically, with lots of red herrings and and it actually kind of works on on that level as well because that's what takes the place of the the sort of supernatural elements or the you know a lot of a lot of the other things. So again, not a perfect movie doesn't hold up after all these years, but there were still a lot of elements that I enjoyed about it. The construction of the scenes when Jamie Kennedy is on the couch watching Halloween and the killer winds up behind him and he's telling Lori, no, look out behind you. And the killer's behind her. And then you, they've, they've set up the 30 second delay. So then you cut to Nev Campbell with the cameraman in the van and they're watching him watching Halloween going, no, 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 look out. The killer's behind you and not realizing that the, the, the killer has already heard them and is escaping those scenes are, are really well constructed and really effective in terms of being both humorous and, and sort of clever and also really scary in the payoff. The thing that's most you know worthy of our discussion would be the little references and intersections directly to Halloween. And that's one of the big scenes that does that. But I mean, I, I did want to comment that overall, I think that on the one hand, while this is really, progressive and transgressive in some ways that like kind of poking fun at, at having characters being very aware of the rules of horror films and, and being, you know, uh, conscious of things that the protagonists and victims of 99% of slasher movies never are. That's, that's definitely sort of a, a bold move, but it's also a very old fashioned and broad movie in every other respect. It's like the, the dialogue pertaining to that stuff and the, and the little moments like the one you're describing are really kind of challenging the institutions of this sort of played out genre, but actual beats of characters, Dewey, Gale, Sidney Prescott, uh, I forget his name, Billy, right? Is that, is, it's Billy? Anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, they, um, their dynamics tend to be, you know, kind of ordinary and familiar to me. And I do think that the Stu character is kind of interesting in a sense that he's such a, 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 a terrible scumbag, like even when he's uh, hiding in plain sight. That 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 mm. actually is you know somewhat more more interesting or different from expectations, but yeah, I don't know. Like, it's a movie that so much of stuff just feels kind of like eye rollingly TV again, sort of back to my H two O kind of criticism. And then like they have stuff that's like really incisive and and really is kind of cutting to the heart of taboos that you know movies just don't acknowledge that characters should know this type of thing but they really should and you know i i definitely put a value on that but back to the the killers themselves i mean i think you mentioned it as a as a positive i don't see it that way that these guys 
increasingly after that knockout opening sequence. They they're human, inept, often gotten the better of, vulnerable. Like I don't I can't put Ghostface in in any kind of pantheon for me because I'm keenly aware and I guess, you know, to the credit of the film and the sort of integrity of reality that the film is attempting, these are just a couple of high school chuckleheads. They might be demented, but they're not particularly competent and they're, you know, they're getting hit in the balls and they're getting outsmarted and like it it, it quickly becomes evident that they're imitating movies rather than they don't deserve to have their own movie essentially in my eyes. And that it was fundamentally disappointing to me the first time I saw it after you see this very, you know, Machiavellian diabolical thing that they put the Drew Barrymore character through. I get it. I understand why they go this route and that was the fresh and, and innovative and sort of insightful look at this tired genre that needed to be put down. Like all of the slasher movie sequels, Friday and Halloween and nightmare on Elm street were bombing at this point. And it put those movies in perspective that was probably needed to, to move us beyond some tired cliches. But I don't particularly love this film and that's just for a ton of reasons. And, and even though, like I will say, like I'm looking, I'm scrolling through the dialogue on IMDb. There's some really strong stuff in here and I can't say this is a dumb movie or in, in, you know, I can't criticize it. I just don't love it. I agree with you for a variety of reasons. I don't think that Ghostface belongs in the pantheon of, of great slashers. And, and then that's what I mean is that I think that, that the movie has some very scary scenes, but again, I think it, I think it functions better through the lens of, you know, an Agatha Christie kind of story, you know, that just happens to be sort of hyper violent and, and done with through this kind of, this kind of meta lens. But again, not, not least of which is the fact that the mantle sort of passes to a different person in every, in every movie. So it, I don't think it, I don't think it even necessarily qualifies for consideration alongside something like Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees. Well, you're it's right. Just not, it's just not the, it's not the same kind of movie. Yeah. It's, it's definitively a whodunit, like narratively, not a slasher mm-hmm. movie. I mean, there's no doubt about it. The whole like dramatic conceit is constantly who is the killer, you know, and they're, that's the game that they're playing with the audience. But that's a very Agatha Christie is, you know, pretty old fashioned kind of storytelling. And that's fine. It's still valid. And there's a lot of good whodunit mysteries out there. But like grafting that kind of hoary old plot structure onto this movie, look, it works. I'm not going to say it doesn't, but. That's not value added for me watching it now. I, I feel like, okay, yeah. There is some game in saying, in watching the little subtleties between Stu and Billy knowing that they're the killers. Like I do take some yeah. appreciation of their early scenes and, and you know, having that knowledge and what the subtext of their dialogue and behavior is. There's definitely something cool about it. It's just an odd movie because – if you were going to say in a lab, like, all right, well, let's send up or deconstruct the 
the genre, I would not be like, well, and let's make it an Agatha Christie, Christie mystery. That's like the perfect plot, like uh, vehicle engine to 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 drape all of those uh, ambitions on. I just it doesn't that I wouldn't have chosen that, and I'm not sure why they did. But you but know, what do I know? If it if it is an Agatha Christie story, it's not even a good one. Like, how many candidates are there even to be the murderer? You have, like, Cotton Weary, who is a, a total non-character yep. um, off-camera. You have the dad, and you have um, Jamie Kennedy. Those are, like, your only non... That's true. Well, maybe they, the principal... <laughs> The principal, yeah, they flirt with the principal for a couple of scenes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for for a few seconds. It's I, I don't know. I'm I'm definitely in John's camp. I remember when this movie came out. I was actually I was weirdly scarcely aware of its existence until it hit home video. Which, considering that I was, I was definitely paying attention to the genre. Uh, really says something about like you were saying, uh, John, about how much it had waned and about how slasher movies had really sort of fallen to uh, bottom of the barrel territory. So yeah, this came out. I remember there being a lot of, of, of fuss about it. I remember seeing it at the time and not being leaving it, having it leave much of an impression on me in general. And rewatching it this time, I found it just be an absolute drag. Like mm-hmm. this movie was a time capsule a stale time capsule of everything that ended up making 90s horror movies bad and even movies outside the genre. Which, not to say that you're not completely right and that all the other horror movies at that point had sort of like gone so far past their expiration date that they need a complete reboot. And this thing is what motivated that. So I guess that that's ultimately a good thing. But just like... The cast is dispassionate or obnoxious and nowhere else in between. It's poorly acted and like unnecessarily shiny. The lighting in it alone is like it's glaring in every single scene. The the knowingness of it was maybe cute at the time. I couldn't help but being struck by the idea that maybe I have just seen too many movies now that have taken pieces of this, that it's like that this felt so almost rehashed to me. It felt like the lightest treatment of the like meta knowing version of, of storytelling. Um, you know, bear, bear in mind that something like, uh, like being John Malkovich came out within five years of this movie. So it's like, this doesn't seem like it's really scratching the surface in terms of being a self-referential, Movie. They really just make some sort of like passing comments at the rules of it. But like ultimately, I just couldn't. I couldn't get past the 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 style of it in general and the cast. Just like good God, like why? Like I knew almost everyone's name in this movie, and I couldn't for the life of you <laughs> tell you why. <laughs> Why do I know who Matthew Lillard is? <laughs> he was very right. good in The Descendant. All right, I like Matthew Lillard. Yeah, seventeen years um, later. <laughs> right. Yeah. Don't forget. I mean, Wes Craven only a few years before this made New Nightmare. 
which was the, I mean, maybe the one of the most sort of meta horror films that had come out up to that point. So he'd already splashed around in this pool a little bit. And I think, I mean, I would say, without having thought about it too much, that New Nightmare is a superior film to this. More, more admirable for its intent than its execution. I would agree with that. Um, but whereas this, I think that the, the intent is pretty low, and I, I mostly like the execution. I didn't. I liked a lot of the performances and, and uh, uh, I don't know the the, the style of it. I, I see what you're talking about. It is shiny and not gritty, which I think is one of those qualities that carries over to Halloween H2O and the reason that we. John says it looks like a TV movie. Yep. Sorry, Savannah, the three-legged cat would like to. Uh, she would like to voice her opinions on this as well. Yeah, um, I don't know, Vic. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. Like, what was redeeming about Nev Campbell? She's cute. Is she even? <laughs> yeah. I'll give her that. I'll give her I, that. I, 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 think, mm. I think she has a couple of good scenes. I really like the scene when uh, when Gail Weathers is trying to convince her that Cotton Weary didn't really commit the murders, and you see her actually accepting that maybe she was wrong about it. I think her, her initial interactions as kind of a strong heroine dealing with the people on the phone is very good. I agree with that. I don't know. I, I again, I, there's all, the, the, a lot of that stuff works. I I did like the the one moment on the phone, but that's it. It was all downhill from there. Yeah, I think I've got to give Wes Craven a lot of credit as a director who is a legitimate visionary. Like in how almost every turn of his career, he moves the genre with the things that he he chose to pursue and the quality of execution. And, you know, this does fall in line with that and, you know, say what you want about a stylist, like a a brilliant director on so many levels as, as John Carpenter, there weren't a billion big trouble in little China knockoffs or the thing ripoffs these days, a lot of people draw on the thing, but you know, like Wes Craven had his his finger on the zeitgeist in a way of not just like reflecting the narrative but shaping the narrative culturally and i give him a lot of credit for that but yeah i this movie isn't something that i think of all that positively because a lot of the movies that it spawned i absolutely hated and at that time i was so hungry for for horror and i'm like oh my god i really have to watch what they called then WB kids, you know, being in, in these sort of lame Agatha Christie, uh, knockoffs, that was not what I wanted. And so I, I do harbor a little bit of resentment in that way, uh, towards this film and its impact on the genre. I will agree a hundred percent with all of that. Uh, I, I did not like any of the, the subsequent, urban legends and i know what you did right. last summers and curse i do have i do have kind of a soft spot in my heart for the faculty i was uh, gonna bring up the faculty yeah does that yeah, really count though because wasn't better. that a sci-fi horror film really i mean it's 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 I not think it's, but, it was, but it was still kevin williamson yeah i mean i mean i'm not going to tell you that everything kevin williamson ever did was crap but uh, you know, <laughs> as much as you might think that listening to me talk on this on this podcast, but but no, I mean yeah, um, he's a very sharp writer, and he and he definitely advanced you know the the discussion in some ways. 
and had a, a he was a, a big voice of the nineties. Let's put it sure, that. Sure, he was he was controlling the conversation for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Can't take that away from him. I mean so did Limp Biscuit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well said. Yeah, exactly, Rich. Yeah. Yeah. So um the the Limp Bizkit greatest hits album is not finding its way, you know, into my ears anytime real soon. So one line I will highlight because I, I wanted to and I'm you know not I'm failing at this, but I wanted to tie it directly to the film's uh mentions of Halloween. And uh, all I'm going to throw out now as we wrap this up is Stu says, I want to see breasts. I want to see Jamie Lee's breasts. When do we see Jamie Lee's breasts? And Randy goes, breasts? Not until Trading Places in 1983. Jamie Lee was always a virgin in horror movies. She didn't show her tits till she went legit. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Kevin Williamson. <laughs> I yeah. like that. All right. Any final thoughts, guys, on um, Scream and its commentary on Halloween, ideally? I'm, I'm ready to put all this to bed. I don't know where we're going next, but uh, I, I, feel like, I feel like we have truly gotten to the bottom of uh, everything that is, that is good, bad, and weird about the Halloween franchise. And uh, in Scream, it's the, the progeny that it spawned. Agreed. I'm planning on going back and watching four, five, and six from the Halloween franchise. Uh, I won't talk about it on the air. I'll just be calling and texting you guys individually to talk through my thoughts. I look forward right. to that. I look forward to that. Yeah, that sounds that sounds like fun. I, I know you're probably joking, but I hope you're serious because <laughs> I think John and I would be down for that. Yeah. When, when Henry wakes up, when your son wakes up in the middle of the night and you need you, you need something to do, just put on a Halloween movie. You know, it's it's a good way to kill time while you wait for him to fall asleep again. He, the kid, only wants to watch The Witch. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> He's not quite ready for it. Follows yet, Rich? Like, give it another yeah. two or three months and it's, then show him it follows. Yeah, that's a little mature for him. <laughs> All right, well, what a long, strange trip it's been. Uh, thank you guys for joining me in this crazy endeavor, and thank you, everyone who's listened. I greatly appreciate all of you who have been with us for more than two years, uh, dating back to our last pod and the Friday the 13th shows and everything, and it really means a lot that you enjoy us talking about this stuff in such ridiculous detail and getting drunk and weird and silly and just hope you dig it so thank you so much for being with us and hopefully you'll see us down the road before too long uh let's keep under wraps what our plans might be but uh, i don't think you've heard the last of us so with that said i'm john evans thanking you for vic wheat and rich eckersley happy fucking halloween adios motherfuckers that was kind of my Rob Zombie meets <laughs> Resurrection. Buster Rhymes, yeah. Yeah, Buster yeah. Rhymes, yeah. All right, well, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> good, good sign-off, guys. Good sign-off. <laughs>